Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 27, verses 27 to 56. It can be found on page 834 in your pew Bibles and on the screen behind me. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they, crucif- when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is God's word. Thank you, Ruth. 
keep your Bibles open to Matthew 27, if you will. Uh, I apologize for the, the coloration on the screen. We had several folks working overtime this morning trying to even get the screens to work, period. So, uh, but uh, apologize for that. Hopefully you can still follow along. Uh, but go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 27, and let's pray as we look at God's Word together. Gracious Father, thank you that when your word is opened and your people look to you in faith, we know you are present in a special way. And so we pray that you would be with us this morning as we seek to hear from you. And as we seek to hear from you in one of the most foundational passages of Scripture. Lord, give us grace. I pray that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts and our lives. You know uh, each one of our stories. You know what's troubling our hearts or what's filling them with joy. The common thread in every story in this room, in every life, is our great need for your gospel, for your grace. And Lord, you give it freely. So may we see that. May we see Jesus afresh. May your spirit give us ears to hear your voice and hearts ready to be changed by your gospel, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are fast approaching the conclusion of Matthew's gospel. Uh, We've been at it for a while. It's a large book. Um, but without a doubt, what we've seen through, through our whole study and our whole uh, time in this book is that the predominant theme throughout has been the kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. The kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. The book opened by announcing that Jesus was born as the long-awaited king. You know, we've got... Advent starting up next Sunday, if you can believe it. And you remember what the Magi said as they uh, came searching for Jesus. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So out of the very first chapters, Jesus' identity as king is on display. He launches his ministry by declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He demonstrates his royal authority through his teaching. He teaches as a king. Through his healing, through his casting out of demons, he reveals the hidden nature of his kingdom through his parables. He's unlocking the mysteries of what it means that God reigns. And even, you know, a week ago in our story, he entered Jerusalem lauded as a king, the true king. When the book finally closes at the end of chapter 28, it does so with Jesus' own words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so there's no mistaking that that the main point Matthew wants us to get in this gospel is that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. And the climactic moment when Jesus asserts his rightful claim to the throne happens right here in our passage in Matthew 27. 
the entire Gospel of Matthew, and in a very real sense, the entire Old Testament that's been preceding this story, all of it has been moving forward to this point in history right here in Matthew 27. And if you look at the passage, it's filled with the imagery and language of Jesus' identity as king. He's dressed in a scarlet robe. He receives a crown and a scepter. People bow down to him. He's declared to be king no fewer than three times. Hail, king of the Jews, verse 29. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, verse 37. He's the king of Israel, verse 42. And yet all of this is done in mockery. His identity as king is on display, but it's acknowledged in mockery. All of this is done while he is on his way to and then hung from a cross. There are two themes in this passage that seem otherwise foreign to each other that kind of collide together. Kingship and cross. Kingship and cross. Those two things don't seem to go with each other. But as we're going to see in this passage, if you don't understand each one in light of the other, then you don't actually understand either of them at all. What it means for God to reign as king and what Jesus has done on the cross. Matthew shows us that that at the heart of God's heavenly kingdom, at the heart of all that God has been doing to to establish justice on this earth, to reclaim uh, his rightful rule over his fallen and rebellious world, to, to make right everything that's wrong, to establish his rule and reign, the heart of his kingdom is the crucifixion of his eternal son. You can't have the kingdom without the cross. And and conversely, Matthew shows us that in the cross, we find not just my individual salvation and, and hope for going to heaven when I die. We do find that. Praise God, we find that. But we find so much more than that in the cross. We find the very power through which God is accomplishing all of his plans for his kingdom, his people, and his new creation. But to see those things come together, we have to clear away some misunderstandings of what we think about when we think of being a king. What does it mean to be a king? And we need to see in clearer context all that Jesus is actually doing through the cross as the king. And so I want to think first about what it really means for Jesus to be king. We don't have a great context for kingship, growing up in a North American democracy. Um, Our basic idea of kingship today generally is somewhere between Disney and Prince William and, you know, Kate Middleton. So somewhere between, you know, fairy tale and figurehead. That's what we think of. It's a life of luxury where everything goes well. It always ends in a happy story and people write books about you. Or, or at least, you know, put you in the tabloids or something. And, and yet, at a deeper level, we all have pretty strong expectations about how a king should act. 
Kingship is a matter of glory, of honor, of power and wealth and prestige. It's an office that demands respect and wields a power that ought to be able to thwart suffering and opposition. Certainly, no self-respecting king would let themselves get nailed to a cross. That much we know. And so when we read Matthew 27, it feels like Jesus' claim to the kingship that he's been establishing throughout the book, it feels like that's unraveling for us. That's what it feels like to his disciples. Like all of their dreams are being crushed. It's what it looks like to the authorities as they're executing him. And it's certainly what it looks like to the crowds. That the cross is a contradiction to kingship. Now, we tend to have a rather sanitized view of the cross uh, today in our imaginations. We think of it kind of as a, as a pretty decoration on a church building or maybe a nice piece of jewelry that we might wear Sunday morning or something. It's easy to forget that in the ancient world, the cross was an instrument of torture. It was a means of public execution, not unlike you know, a hanging in the Wild West or something like that. As one author describes, the cross was an object of scorn, the consequence of rebellion, the most humiliating and excruciating form of punishment for the worst kinds of criminals in the ancient Roman world. To the Romans, it was so degrading that a Roman citizen could only be crucified by a direct edict of Caesar. That's how bad it was. To the Jews, crucifixion meant that the person was outside the covenant people, cursed. And so they demanded that that the crucifixions take place outside the walls of Jerusalem. So how could anyone condemned as a rebel and executed in such a humiliating and demeaning way in any real sense claim to be king? If Jesus were really king, he wouldn't let this happen. The cross is a contradiction to kingship. If he were a king, he wouldn't let it happen. And that's exactly the expectation we find among the crowds as they're looking on. In verse 40, Matthew 27, verse 40. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God... Come down from the cross. No king would let this happen. If you're really king. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. The irony is thick on multiple levels. On one level, they're being ironic. They're calling him king, but they don't really believe it. They're making fun of him. But there's another deeper level of irony happening in that what they say is actually true. It's actually true. Jesus is the king, and he's proving it not by coming down from the cross, but by staying on it. That's how he proves his kingship. 
It's on the cross where his royal identity is publicly displayed for the entire world to see. Written in three languages, the the charge that's posted above his head. Aramaic for the Jews to read, Latin for the Romans, Greek for the rest of the nations. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's his royal identity, which makes the cross his throne. As one author puts it, what for Pilate and the soldiers was Jesus' crime, his claim to be Israel's true king, was for Matthew the sober truth. And the crucifixion was the means by which his kingdom would be established. It's on the cross where he will do what is necessary to bring God's heavenly kingdom to bear on earth. It's on the cross where he shows us what a real king is like if you think back to the sermon on the mount earlier in in matthew's gospel chapters five through seven which gives us one of the clearest pictures of what it means to live under the reign of christ under god's reign as part of his kingdom think about the sermon on the mount and notice how Jesus embodies his own kingdom values as he faces crucifixion. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes, Jesus himself at last is struck in the face by the soldiers and doesn't retaliate. He turns the other cheek. They take off his outer and inner garments, leaving him naked. If anyone sues you and takes your tunic, Give him your cloak as well. As he's going out to be crucified, the soldiers use their right under Roman law to compel someone to carry a burden for them, just as in Matthew 5.41. If someone makes you go one mile, go a second. Only this time the burden in question is the heavy crossbeam on which Jesus will be hung. The point of it all is this. Jesus is leading the way he had spoken of from the beginning. The way of being God's true Israel, the light of the world. He himself is set on a hill, unable now to remain hidden. This is how he's shining the light of God's love into the dark corners of the world. By taking the evil of this world, the hatred and cruelty and unthinking mockery of the world, the gratuitous violence bullying and torture that still defaces the world and letting it do its worst to him. That's a king. Think about how Jesus' kingship contrasts the kinds of kings that we see in the fallen world around us. Our public leaders and so on. D.A. Carson writes that the kings and rulers and presidents of this fallen world order exercise their authority out of a deep sense of self-promotion, out of a deep sense of wanting to be number one, out of a deep sense of self-preservation, even out of a deep sense of entitlement. By contrast, Jesus exercises his authority in such a way as to seek the good of his subjects And that takes him finally 
to the cross. You think back to, to Matthew 20, Jesus' conversation with James and uh, John, and their mom, as she's kind of asking that, you know, when you come into your kingdom, could you let my boys sit on your right and your left? The assumption there, like so many of our assumptions, that, was, that when Jesus came into his kingdom, the kingdom was a matter of glory and power. But remember what Jesus says to them. Matthew 20, verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And now in Matthew 27, we see exactly what Jesus meant. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. You really want to sit there? Because that's what my kingdom looks like. It's not the crown and the glory Not yet. It's self-giving love. That's what my kingdom looks like. I mean, think about what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying that this is the moment when he comes into his kingdom. When he's nailed to that cross. That the cross is his throne. From which he rules. And he's flanked not by his apostles, but by those whom God appointed. A couple of terrorists. A couple of insurrectionists. Jesus is numbered among the transgressors, as Isaiah 53 puts it. It's through the cross that Jesus accomplishes the work that he came to do in bringing God's rule and reign to bear on this fallen earth. It's through the cross that he's inaugurating God's heavenly kingdom, that he's beginning God's new creation. And so kingdom and cross are not at odds with each other, as we so often assume. They are intimately and inextricably held together. But why the cross? Why suffering and death? Isn't there a less painful way You know, he's God, right? Could he have just done this some other way? Why the cross? Well, if we look again at that same conversation Jesus was having with James and John and and the disciples when they're kind of vying for glory and, and totally missing the picture, we see that Jesus has already told us why the cross. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? What's the price you pay to buy someone back? To buy them out of slavery? That's a ransom. Well, ransom to what? Well, he says something similar In chapter 26, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he says that in verse 28, For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And so we need to be ransomed. We need to be rescued from our slavery to sin, our rebellion against God. Jesus' death on the cross does not simply model for us a new way to live, though it does do that. It is the very means by which God deals decisively with the greatest problem in this fallen world and therefore the greatest enemy to his kingdom, your sin and mine. When we read chapter 27 and, and the story of the crucifixion, we often focus on the physicality of Jesus' suffering, uh, the public shame, the mockery, the, the excruciating uh, violence and pain that he endured, all of which was utterly horrible beyond comprehension. And yet the darkest point in this story is not the moment at which the crown of thorns pierced his forehead or the soldiers slammed it more deeply into his forehead with a stick. The darkest moment is not that moment when the nails actually pierce his hands and his feet. The darkest moment is when the sun actually fades from noon to three. What ought to be the brightest part of the day goes completely dark, not because of an eclipse or some sort of natural phenomenon, but as a sign of God's judgment on his son as a divine fulfillment of of prophetic passages like Amos chapter 8. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. The darkness that hung over Jesus as he hung on that cross was a sign of God's judgment. His judgment against sin poured out on his son in our place. And so when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where we see the real pain of the cross. Not just the physical brutality, but the separation, the the forsaking, the broken relationship between Heavenly Father and Eternal Son, during which time the Father poured out on His Son the full weight of His holy anger and wrath against all human sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed. In those three hours, Jesus bore hell for us. That's the real pain of the cross. Our king loved us so much that he would do that for us, that that he would take death that we might enter his kingdom and have life. Imagine you're driving down the road and your car stalls at a railroad crossing. You're understandably nervous. It's not where you want to be stuck. But you're more so when you see and hear the train coming around the corner. 
And, and the engineer lays on the brake and lays on the horn, but he's coming too fast and you are too close. And, and so you go from trying to, to kind of get the engine started to just trying to get your seatbelt undone, but your hands are so stiff with fear and so sweaty that you can't get the belt undone. And you look and you know you're going to be hit, and you are from behind as someone in a pickup truck decides to ram your car off the track even as they're destroyed by the impact of the train. That is but a sliver, but a mere hint of the love of Christ in going to the cross for you and for me. A king without a cross stands behind you honking and yelling, telling you to get yourself off the track before it's too late. Save yourself so you can get back to serving me. That's what a king without a cross says. And in fact, that's what every substitute king, every king other than Jesus says to us. If your career is your king, if that's what you look to for identity and security and satisfaction in life, then every day you show up to work, your car, your car stalls on the tracks. And it is a nervous race to keep your boss happy, to get enough done, to do whatever needs to get done, to save yourself and get off the track. Because if you don't, you will be undone. If your school is your king, your substitute God, then every class is like sitting on the tracks and every test is another train coming around the corner. And it's all up to you to save yourself and get an A and preserve your life because if you don't, you will be undone. If your kids are your king, your salvation, if, if your identity is bound up in what people think of you because of them, then every time your kid goes into public, your car stalls on the track. And you're the one yelling at them from the track, save me, save me, save me. There is no peace in a kingdom without a cross. There is no peace in a kingdom without a cross. There is only fear and force. But Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We deserved the train for our rebellion. Jesus took it in our place that we might share in his kingdom. And he did that according to God's plan. Matthew makes that point so frequently in his gospel that I'm beginning to feel very redundant pointing it out time and time again. But, but Matthew wants us to, to know at every turn of the story that what Jesus is doing, he's doing as a fulfillment of Scripture. He continues to point it out. And specifically in our passage, a fulfillment of Psalm 22. It's all over. It's like the background music of Matthew 27. Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. It's a direct quote. 
Now, now Psalm 22 is written by David as a lament. So it was a, a, a gut-wrenching prayer and cry of desperation out of the anguish of his enemies triumphing over him. It's a lament. God, where are you? What are you doing? If you don't show up, it's all over. And, and, and David, as he's experiencing this and, and, and praying this, you know, his enemies publicly mock him. So Psalm, if you want to, you can, you can flip to Psalm 22. Keep your thumb in Matthew 27. But Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Notice how the crowds mocking Jesus echo those very words. Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he desires him. The the chief priests have no idea that what they're doing is echoing a psalm in their mockery of their king. Matthew 27, 35, when when the guards cast lots for Jesus' clothes, so it's kind of like playing a dice game to see who gets to take home what. They do so as an unwitting fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And just a couple of verses before that, Matthew twenty-two sixteen, we have a prophetic description of crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. A description of crucifixion centuries before the Romans invented the torture. Think about that for a minute. Hundreds of years before that kind of torture would be invented, and you have a foretelling of the way God's messianic king would die. You can't make that stuff up. This happened according to God's plan, in fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus may look like he's losing, and he is. He is. He's been abandoned by his followers, rejected by the Jews, crucified by the Romans, and forsaken by his heavenly Father. He doesn't just seem to lose or seem to suffer and die. Jesus does. But it's through dying that he will win. Not by coming down from the cross or just kind of making it look like he did it. It's through dying on our behalf that he actually wins. And as we'll see next week, he he doesn't stay dead. Vindication is coming. The resurrection is around the corner. And with his resurrection, he brings the dawn of God's new creation on earth. All of the hopes, all of the longings for for the day when God would show up and decisively make right everything that's wrong in this world, that day dawns with the cross and resurrection. It's not here in full, not until Christ returns, but it has begun. It has begun. 
In fact, already in our passage, we see signs of the inbreaking of his kingdom and new creation. Look at the effect of Christ's crucifixion in Matthew 27, 51 to 54. So this is what happens after the moment when Jesus yields his spirit to the Father. Some wild and crazy stuff. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies, from the place of God's special presence, where he makes his his presence known in a a unique way among his people. A, A place too holy for any sinful person to enter into. That curtain separating us was torn. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to bear our sin and exhaust God's wrath such that we now, through faith in him, have access to God. He's the great high priest, the final priest, whose perfect sacrifice in his own blood is enough such that we have access to God by the Spirit. Continuing in verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now that's even crazier. I wish we were told a little bit more about what exactly is happening here. This is interesting. But, But it appears that So the tombs are broken open during the earthquake when Christ dies. And then after his resurrection, some of those in the tombs who who, who are God's people rose bodily and were seen in Jerusalem. We don't know who. But the point of all of this being that, that what we all look forward to in the end, the resurrection from the dead into Christ's likeness, what we all look forward to in the final resurrection in the end, has been won for us already through Christ's death and resurrection. And the signs are springing forth. So powerful are those signs that we see one final declaration in our passage of who Jesus is. And this time, it's not said in mockery or scorn, but amazement, maybe even faith. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. The centurion looked on the suffering of Jesus and its effects and concluded that he was looking at the Son of God, the true King of heaven and earth. When you look on the suffering of Jesus in this passage, what's your conclusion? When you consider kingship and cross and how they come together, what's your conclusion? Do you have a category for a crucified king? If not you're going to have a hard time following Jesus. 
Some of us have a hard time with the king part. We like the salvation part, not so sure about the king part. If Jesus is king, that means I'm not. If Jesus is really king of heaven and earth, that means I owe him my allegiance. It means I don't actually have the right to control my life or decide for myself what's right and wrong. God has that right, and I'm not sure if I want to give that to him. I kind of like being king. Though if I'm honest, I'm no good at it. When I try and take control and make things go my way, you can pretty much guarantee I'm going to mess it up far worse than it was before. In fact, there's no greater misery on earth than having the responsibility to do something, but lacking the ability to pull it off. And that's where I live when I try to be king. But you don't have to be king. God's not asking you to be king. Jesus is king. He's the only one that's able to take what's broken in this world and put it back together. You don't have to be king. But you do need to follow him. He's the king. He's worthy of your allegiance. He gave his life to save you, not just so that you could secure for yourself a get-out-of-hell-free card when you need it someday, but so that you might become part of his kingdom right now, that your life might be changed now, not only in the end, that you might know the freedom of having the debt of sin that you owed canceled, wiped clean, that you might know the joy of having relationship with the God of the universe and being able to call him Father because you're united with Jesus, his son. That you might know the blessing of life under his reign. Life lived in the light of an acknowledgement of an obedience and surrender and submission to Jesus as king. There's blessing in that, not curse. That you might find your place in the story that he's telling as a servant of the king, as an ambassador of his grace, to represent him and his love. So some of us have a hard time with the the king part, but some of us have a hard time with the crucified part. Maybe because we think that we can handle the whole kingdom living thing on our own. Quite well without Jesus' help. You know? I recycle. I give to charity. You know, I, I serve the poor once every now and then. I got this. And those are good things, but none of those things are going to make up for the debt of sin against a holy God. It just won't. Only the precious blood of Christ is pure enough to cleanse us before a holy God. We need a crucified king. But maybe some of us have a hard time with the crucified part because our view of kingship is more like Disney than Jesus. And our expectation is that if I follow the king, then my life's going to go well. That he's going to give me my best life now and and protect me from everything harmful or, or Or bad. Again, we forget that we serve a crucified king. 
that though the day will come when there will be no more suffering and no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, that, that the day will come when we will receive our inheritance in full in the presence of God forever. Never to worry about that stuff anymore. That day is coming, but it's not yet here. The crown time is not yet. We still live in the cross time. And Jesus has called us to share in his sufferings in that meantime. Which means that if you find yourself facing trials of various kinds, it's not because Jesus has slipped off the throne. It's because he loves you. It's because he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. He wants to change you. He's not finished with us. He's refining us. He's building in us a character that's reflective of his kingdom. And he's using us to display his self-giving love as we share in the sufferings of Christ. Not adding to his suffering, but sharing in it. And he's teaching us the hard-won lesson that there is nothing on this earth that can provide the stability or the satisfaction or the security that can begin to compare with what we have in Christ. That if I were to lose everything in this world today, if I have Jesus, I have lost nothing. That's a hard-won lesson. But he's committed to helping us grow in it. That Jesus would be our greatest treasure. That we would have no substitute gods taking up his space on the throne. That he would be enough. As he said earlier in chapter 6, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Jesus is king. He's proven it through the cross. He establishes his kingship not through fear and force, but through self-giving love. And his love is for you. There's something fitting about preaching a Good Friday sermon the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for in Christ. Let's pray.